Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant on today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 496th show of ROI. And our guest for today's show is Cindy Sweet, Executive Director of the Iowa Museum Association, who is going to talk to us about teaching Iowa History Project Update. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Terry Toppler and Jay Swords. So to begin with, we welcome to our show Cindy. How are you doing, Cindy? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. This is the first segment of our show, which we refer to as Fadaruk Dinarin, and our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on the Teaching Iowa History Project? Sure, absolutely. Thank you. Um, So uh, for those listeners not familiar with the program, Teaching Iowa History leverages the resources of Iowa museums to support K-12 educators in teaching Iowa history. It harnesses the stewardship and educational power of museums which care for, preserve, and document the art, history, and culture of Iowa, and it combines those objects in museum collections with grade-specific standard-based lessons. So this project started um, back in 2014 when we started kind of a pilot project to combine artifacts from public collections with Iowa history lessons. Um, It was a a very informal project when we started, brought about because the social studies coordinator uh, told us there was a need for this. Um, But within a very few short years, Governor Branstead had convened the Iowa History Advisory Council. The council had advocated for new social studies standards that would include Iowa history, and the new standards were adopted, and that was kind of a game changer. Um, We were a member of the Iowa History Advisory Council, and so we absolutely supported this. Um, And it meshed very well with our pilot project and and our desire to combine um, artifacts with history lessons. So once those standards were approved, we were encouraged to apply for a grant to expand our project. And we were very fortunate. We received a three-year grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, as well as funding from the State Historical Society of Iowa's Historic Resource Development Program and Wells Fargo and the support of many individuals and organizations. Um, and so then we kicked off our, our, our project in earnest. The pilot was, was complete. We had our funding. And so we started by inviting um, any and all Iowa museums to participate by sharing photos of their significant artifacts and telling us why those items were significant. Um, we built a database of the objects. We augmented each record with additional research. Um, and by the way, we have been supported all the way along with fabulous students and graduate students who have just been instrumental in, in the program. Um, and we had great partners for this first grant-funded stage. So the University of Northern Iowa, the Iowa History Center at Simpson College, Graceland University, Iowa PBS, Iowa Department of Education, and the University of Iowa Museum Studies Program all. We, we couldn't have done the, the project without them. Uh, so the history education students were really the, the fundamental, um, you know, the basis for the, for the project at that point. Their classes, under the direction of Chad Christopher at UNI and Chad Tim at Simpson College, wrote lesson plans. Um, they learned how to write lesson plans. They learned how to teach with primary uh, sources, and they learned about Iowa history, and they incorporated, incorporated all of that into lesson plans 
that we put into this um, Teaching Iowa History Project. And so when we ended our first grant phase, we had over 70 lesson plans for a variety of different grades and meeting a lot of different social studies standards. And as we built it, we heard from teachers that they needed uh, background information. They didn't have a history textbook. They didn't want a history textbook. They wanted everything online. And um, so at that point, to kind of backfill that need, um, the late Dr. Tom Moraine from Graceland University, who was just an integral part of this project, wrote a series of foundational Iowa history essays. Um, Also, I want to call out Dr. Jeff Bremer from Iowa State University, who has been incredibly generous in sharing excerpts from his um, upcoming book. So we have Iowa stories that give us some foundation on our our site. A number of other people also wrote for the project, so we've been kind of building a collection of essays to provide that background information that teachers asked for. And then we needed a website that would house all the resources so teachers could find things that were online, downloadable, not printed. And at that time, Rob Green, who was um, then at UNI and is now mayor of Cedar Falls, um, he built our website, teachingiowahistory.org. So we got this wonderful website tagged with all kinds of of interconnections, um, but we wanted to do more. So we wanted to share the work that was being done by all the members of the Governor's Iowa History Advisory Council. So we have a menu item called Educator Resources where we provide links to all of their websites. Um, And that's also where folks can find the Iowa stories and links to online collections, any online collections we could find um, relating to Iowa history, and a bibliography of over 400 secondary sources related to Iowa. So that's that's kind of the, the basic program as it was formulated and as the grant uh, funded it and so forth. Um, So since I was on your program two years ago, we completed our three-year NEH grant-funded phase, and the last thing we did during that was a redesign of teachingiowahistory.org for user-friendliness. I learned a lot about websites during this project, so we we needed to make it friendly to use. Um, Then the pandemic hit. (laughs) (laughs) So um, our work on teaching Iowa history kind of came to a halt at that point while we had to make a really rapid pivot to providing online educational opportunities for our members, for those who work and volunteer in Iowa museums. So in 2020 and 2021, we were busy building a new website, imaonlinelearning.com, which is where we put all of our online instructional resources. So we had a conference dashboard, and we provided a virtual conference um, for three years in a row. We developed a new free learning series called IMA Plugged In, a new free networking series called Colleague Conversations. We moved all of our websites or workshops, I should say, to an online format, and we had to do it really, really quickly because we didn't want to not serve our members once they could no longer meet in person. So that brings us to now. That brings us to 2022. All right. Um, One uh, last question before we break for the session. Uh, When you talked about uh, COVID coming along, uh, I'm sure that was like a lightning bolt of fear for you guys because uh, dealing with grants and other situations like that have certain requirements, timeframes, all the above. How did you guys work through that? You know, the the funders were very... um, 
uh, good to work with. They knew as well as anybody else what was going on. They they knew there were people that were going to need extensions. They knew there were people that might have to have a temporary halt and pick it up later. Um, so that that you know, anecdotally, what people have told me from from their standpoint that worked fairly well. The funders were very cognizant of the challenges. You know, museums had to shut down mm-hmm. um, for what were we shut down for months. Um, um, before before they could open up, and even once they opened up, of course, people were not going to public places for a really long time. So, yeah, they, we did have to kind of take a pause there. Okay, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of the show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, one hundred six point one FM. At a time when misinformation is all too common on social media. We take great pride in bringing you the news that matters, that impacts your family, news you can trust. Local broadcast journalists bring you the facts, covering the stories breaking in our community and across the globe. Text RADIO to 52886 and let Congress know you depend on local journalism. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations, or in this instance, programs. Uh, Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Cindy Sweet. Executive Director of the Iowa Museum Association, and we're talking about Teaching Iowa History Project Update. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Jay Swords. Terry, why don't you start us off? Thank you. So, Cindy, you talked about how the pandemic affected um, the teaching the Iowa History Project and how museums were shut down, and yet it also opened up some wonderful online educational opportunities with the new website in 2021. So tell me, what initiatives do you foresee are coming for 2022 and 2023? Well, we're actually very excited. Um, we have hopes and dreams. <laughs> we yeah. have, we okay. have hopes and dreams. So, <laughs> so this year, we've really, um, we've really refocused on teaching Iowa history. Starting in January, we had a a, a paid um, intern from UNI, Peter Limbert, who started getting us caught up on the cataloging. We um, were very blessed to have a new unit created by a Quad Cities teacher, Heather Monson, um, based on the collection of the Davenport Schools Museum. Um, then this summer, for the first time, we offered a summer fellowship to an in-service teacher. So Megan Daner created uh, 12 lessons that combine art and social studies standards with works by um, Iowa artists or artists who resided in Iowa uh, for a period of time. And her work was really um, eye-opening for me and and really phenomenal. Um, we have this tagging system built, built in. The, the Governor's Iowa History Advisory Council developed a tagging system and eras and all kinds of things to help us kind of build a common um, framework and structure for our projects. And, and I knew the tagging system was awesome, but I didn't realize quite how awesome until I saw how we used it with, with Megan's and connecting um, the art standards and the social studies standards and so forth. Uh, we also have the added benefit with, with Megan. She's going to present on her experiences at a conference this fall, and she's going to be teaching her lessons in a classroom. So we're going to get actual feedback from um, a teacher using the lessons in the classroom, which is going to be really invaluable because before we could really get there, the pandemic had hit. And so connecting with teachers has been a real challenge for us. 
Um, and then most recently, Western Illinois University at the Quad Cities, um, they have a museum studies program there, you know, and, and graduate student Emma Coleman is on the project this semester, and she's also doing cataloging and bringing consistency to our database um, by updating authority files and, and so forth. Um, but our hopes and dreams for the future are, are really um, um, enormous. Um, both both exciting and scary. Would you would you like to hear about our hopes and dreams? Yes, I do. <laughs> so, you haven't told these to Rick, have you? We just got asked. Um, no, actually, I don't think I have. <laughs> we might have talked about it at Thanksgiving one time. I don't remember, but you know, circling all the way back to our beginnings when when um, the late Dr. Tom Moraine and I. Uh, we're just, you know, jumping into this project with, with glee and delight. Um, we had lots of conversations about what would come next, and we both agreed that it was content. We needed Iowa history content and that a digital encyclopedia was the way to do that. And so at the, at the time, in the midst of the first grant funded phase, we thought the best way to accomplish that would be with a university partner. And that's the way, that's the direction that we explored for a couple of years. Um, we thought they'd have more capacity, um, obviously, than a nonprofit. Although Tom was very realistic, and he used to tell me that nonprofits can get a lot more done because they're small and they're nimble. Um, and as it turned out, he was right. Um, so the project is is with IMA, and we we want to turn this into an Iowa Digital Encyclopedia. Mm. Um, and I'm sure you're familiar with lots of digital encyclopedias, the Minopedia, Minnesota's Encyclopedia, or Virginia's, or um, Cincinnati's, or there's there's all kinds of digital encyclopedias. But Iowa doesn't really have a, a digital encyclopedia like we're talking about. Um, and, and as I said, I'm, I'm both delighted and scared, and I can uh, tell you why if you want to go into that detail. <laughs> um, okay, why are you delighted and scared? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm delighted because I'd love the opportunity to see the vision come to reality. I, I wish that Tom was here to be part of it because I know that he would also be delighted. I know that a digital encyclopedia would be a benefit to all Iowans. Everyone would use it. It would raise awareness of state history. It would raise awareness of the primary source is held by museums that are tagged into it. It would help educators, which is, you know, the, the, the goal of teaching Iowa history. I mean, I just think there's, there's awesome reasons to do it. Um, and I've been meeting regularly with a nationwide group of individuals who manage um, state and community digital encyclopedias, so I know it's eminently doable. I, I know it's a, it's a doable project, and it would be of benefit to literally everybody in the state, um, scholars, researchers, students, teachers, the general public. It could be awesome. But it's, it's, it's scary. I'm, I am equally trepidatious. Um, the project would require, will require, a lot of partners from all across the state. And I've actually already started a list of my dream team <laughs> because <laughs> I've met so many great people working on teaching Iowa history. And I just, I just know that with um, a, a big group of partners that see the vision, we can, we can get it done. I know it's going to require substantial funding, um, which is scary. We're going to have to, uh, you know, apply for a large grant. We're going to have to hire people. We're going to need to build a website that is slightly different than what we did for teaching Iowa history. We'll be able to use all the resources on teaching Iowa history, but we have to refocus because we have to reorient on the content instead of the lesson plans. Right now, if you go to teaching Iowa history, the lesson plans are kind of the focus because that's how we started, right? Our, our goal was to help the teachers 
teachers that had to meet those new standards. Um, but if we're going to do a digital encyclopedia, we're going to have to reorient on the content and then tag in the instructional resources, the primary sources, and all of that. And we're going to have to hire an experienced uh, editor. This is this is not you know to be taken lightly. Um, we're going to want to pay historians to write and educators to write and interns to help. It's it's just a very big project. Um, but I think it's incredibly exciting. Uh, I've started to kind of think about project goals, um, you know, because I've I've started thinking about grant applications and, you know, in 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 the buzzwords that I know they're going to want to see in a grant application, um, goals like to educate and inform through accessible tagged essays, enabling connections to be made between information, primary sources, instructional resources, locations, and other digital media. Um, to elevate the understanding and use of primary sources for information and education, to provide a mechanism for building community around Iowa history and culture at a challenging time for both nonprofits and institutions of higher education, to develop reliable information that can be distributed in a variety of forms online, in print, and through public programming. I mean, I just think it, it would fill so many needs, um, it, it would it would address a common point of access and connection among the many many digital projects um, that address Iowa history. Wonderful projects, right? But it would it could bring them all together. Um, it's just got it's just got uh, wonderful uh, tentacles throughout so many parts of of history education. Good okay, job, Cindy. I'm interested. Uh, I think we on ROI have done lots of museums. Over the years. And we've had Tom uh-huh. Green on the show. Right, yeah. And, and lots and lots of folks. But I don't know that people in general realize the scope of museums in Iowa. So can you give us just sort of a sample of the different kinds of museums that, that have been part of, of the various projects? Just so that people can get a sense of, of just how wide-ranging the information and material is. Well, we use the word museum very broadly to refer to an organization with a collection held in trust for the public with an educational mission. So that could be an archive. That could be a historical society. Um, It could be an art center or an art museum, botanical garden, um, a seed savers, children's museums, historic sites, uh, history museums, living history sites, nature centers, natural history museums, science and technology centers, zoos, planetariums. There's lots of different kinds of museums that um, hold a collection and trust for the public and have an educational mission. And, and they're, they're, they're managed, owned differently. I mean, they're nonprofits. They're county conservation boards. They're corporate museums. They're college and university museums. They're city departments. The governing structures, I should say, uh, vary widely. Okay. And there are hundreds in Iowa, hundreds. Well, uh, Terry. Yeah, Cindy, as you're talking about this, I wondered, have you contacted the ISDAR, Iowa State for Daughters of the American Revolution? Because talk about artifacts and talking about Iowa history. I mean, just within our, in Davenport here, where they had a Caldwell chapter, we have vintage American flags. We have all kinds of artifacts that I'd like to see someday digitize so that students who are doing research um, about their area or about their state would have access to that. 
That's a great idea. And see, every time I talk to somebody, I find another potential partner. <laughs> uh, that, yeah. This is why I have such a great long list. But I think it's going to be a, a, a project that can bring everybody together. There's room mm-hmm. for everybody with a digital encyclopedia. We don't have a page limit, right? That's <laughs> so right. There's, there's literally very room true. for everybody. I think it could be very exciting. I absolutely agree with you, Terry. I'd like to bring up that in this world of ours with the commercial just announced, rightfully so, that social media has in many ways bludgeoned uh, factual information. And uh, when I talk to my kids in class, and I know Jay, Jay did the same thing, and you talk about primary sources and secondary sources, they look at you like you're talking in a language that they're never going to understand. It really refreshes my um, optimism to hear that you guys are creating such a uh, if when it when this flourishes a uh, reliable and consistent form of information for both primary and secondary sources um, how do you think and you're looking into your crystal ball we do it a lot on the show and, and you know and <laughs> sometimes it blossoms sometimes not looking into your crystal ball how do you see this kind of program changing the future in the next 20 years if it takes off the way you want it to changing the future of learning I've, yeah i think i think it would bring a lot of resources to the classroom i mean all you got to do is open up your computer put it up on a big screen in front and everybody can see uh those artifacts those documents those those images um i think it just uh levels the playing field right okay it brings it to everybody it makes it available across the state okay jay so, Cindy, I'm interested in the logistics. One of the things that certainly would be scary, at least to me, is is the amount of coordination and and so forth. When you have so many pieces involved, someone's got to be there sort of sorting and, and determining what what is or isn't used or how it's organized. And so I'd like to hear a little more about that, you know, what you envisioned you're going to need in terms of staff. And then along with that, a second question would be material is going to constantly come into, um, into existence or is going to be discovered or, or whatever. Um, how do you envision dealing with the logistics of expansion over time? Um, you know, how, yeah. do, you, do you see yourself at some point splintering out? Do you, you know, how, how do you think that's going to work? Well, I don't know that I have all the questions right now. Um, I can tell you uh, after being part of this national group for a couple of years now, I've seen multiple different ways of setting up digital encyclopedias, different uh, platforms being used. Um, some things they all have in common are... Um, very experienced editors and historians that um, can vet the content and uh, present it in a way that is uh, reader-friendly and, and accessible. Um, I think that's an absolute must-have. Um, I, I think hiring the appropriate staff is going to be key. One of my biggest fears is um, getting it getting it started. And, of course, my from my perspective, I think we want to have three years of funding up front before we start because it's going to take three years to get us to a point where we can launch, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't want us to get partway down that and not have the funding to, to finish. Um, so, it, it, you know, once you get the funding set up, you, you, you apply for a grant, and that takes a year to, you know, if you, if you apply. And then, of course, there's no guarantee you might get it. So that, that pushes your date out. 
um, and then you, you identify staff and hire staff and you develop policies and procedures. And uh, again, having worked with this wonderful group of people nationally, they've all got those things already developed and they're all willing to share. Um, so I've got samples of uh, policies, procedures, um, limits for um, um, essays, you know, how long things should be, different levels in the encyclopedia, whether it's, um, you know, a 350-word article on an, on an object or it's a 1,500-word article on an event, you know, those different kinds of layers. Um, does that kind of start to answer that question? Am sure. I missing? Nope. No, I, I think, you know, again, I, the staff, I guess as a follow-up, just my question would be, and I, I'm just thinking of the way that um, educational systems work, uh, we tend not to be able to pay top dollars for folks. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, it seems to me one of the issues that's going to pop up isn't so much getting staff, but keeping staff finding mm-hmm, getting I'm keeping sure. folks that are going to be so i'm just interested you know what kinds of things you're you're thinking of do you envision this becoming part of a university um mandate where where each university or or colleges or whatever are going to sort of identify one member of faculty who's going to be on a board for example do you is that one way to sort of deal with some of those costs for staff um, I, I don't know. That's a really good question. I think that um, I've seen examples of what has happened when it has been housed at um, universities and, and even large historical societies where when the budget gets cut, they cut the entire staff and they just say, well, the encyclopedia can just live online for a little while with nobody taking care of anything. And that, that is equally scary. I don't think that's how you treat a project like this. I, I think you have to have funding and um, and, and treat your staff uh, with respect and, and appropriately so that they do stay on. Um, I want to partner with every college and university in Iowa because they all are going to have historians and um, graduate students and people that will be interested, I think, in this, and everybody will bring great skills to it. Um, so it's a matter of figuring out who the who the core team is, first of all, to kind of hone the vision and decide what platform we're going to use and write the grant application. And then it's a matter of identifying, you know, who's out there in the universe that might be interested in being an editor and has that skill set or might be interested in being, um, you know, a historian and writing things and has that skill set. Um, and the more people we can bring into it with diverse skills, I think the, the better it will be, the more robust it will be. Okay. We literally have a minute left, and it's customary to give our guests the last word on the show. Cindy, why do you think knowing about the Teaching Iowa History Project is relevant to today's world? I think that um, we have underfunded history and civics education for a very long time. We have pushed it aside and said other things are more important, and those other things are equally important, you know, STEM education and all of that. But we have to start educating about our history and what it means to be an American and live in a democracy and civics education and why it's important to uh, be involved in your community and what others have done before you. And so by building a digital encyclopedia that includes those stories of, you know, the mayor from this town or the senator from that town, as well as all of the other events and people that have that have made this a great state, we're just going to add to that tapestry of Iowa history education that it, it's going to just lift everybody up. 
Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 496th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley, and we would like to thank our noted guest, Cindy Sweet, Executive Director of the Iowa Museum Association, who is going to talk to us about Teaching Iowa History Project Update. The history bus for today's show were Terry Toppler and Jay Swords. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, Peace, Reign, and Prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night.